Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Freeman Means Business Wonder Women in Business podcast. Everyone has a story, and on our podcast, we love to give a voice to the women whose story is moving, meaningful, and compelling. Today's guest is Camila Mize. Camila, welcome to the show. Hi, Susan. Thank you so much for having me today. I have been so looking forward to this episode. You are such a wonderful person. I don't know all of my guests before I interview them, but I have gotten to know you over the phone through business, and I'm just thrilled to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited, too. <laughs> well, good. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, my name, as you said, it's Camila Mize. And I am currently the Director of Customer Success at OG Life Lab, which is a soft skills training company. Um, our current product is called the Emotion Life Lab, and it's a breakthrough emotional intelligence training system, which was co-developed by the leaders of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. So I get to work in the world of emotional intelligence right now, which is awesome. Uh, I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area and actually lived in New York for about 10 years. I attended Fordham University and majored in both psychology and economics. And uh, I actually had a career in finance before coming back to um, this amazing work that we do um, with our, our leaders at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence um, and the work we're doing at OG. So, um, yeah, I, I used to, my career started out at Merrill Lynch in New York and um, eventually led me to doing macroeconomic and geopolitical analysis with an amazing economist named Bernard Connolly. And so it was a little different <laughs> than the uh, work I get to do today, but I do think that they're very much closely related, you know, economics and psychology and emotions and decision making. Um, there's a lot of interplay between those two fields. I wanted to ask you about that. So you just said there's a lot of interplay, whereas my first thought was how in the world did she go from finance and macroeconomics to feelings? So finance, <laughs> finance to feelings, how yeah. happened? <laughs> so it's actually, it's kind of a beautiful, like full circle story here. So when I was an undergraduate at Fordham, I actually worked as a research assistant on some of Dr. Mark Brackett's early ruler research. Um, they were conducting surveys out in, in Brooklyn with schools that were trying the, the ruler system. And I was really just doing data collection in and around the, the Brooklyn Archdiocese. and even as an undergrad, you know, I wasn't supposed to know which schools were doing the ruler program and which ones weren't, but it was like night and day when I would walk into these, these different environments <laughs> from wow. the way that the, the principal or the administrators would greet me. Um, the overall kind of climate in the classroom was completely different. And I was immediately struck with, you know, what, what is this thing that's happening um, that would cause you know one environment to feel really calm cool and collected versus another that would feel really chaotic and kind of high energy and uh, i became really curious about this this ruler program and and the work that was coming out of the center for emotional intelligence and there were studies that were published later that included some of the data from that that um, actually illustrated the huge impact that ruler was having on schools and so now that program has been used with, with millions of students across the country 
And that um, experience always stuck with me. So as an undergrad, my hope was actually to get my PhD in psychology, and I wanted to study a field called neuroeconomics, which is kind of the, the interconnection between psychology and economics and decision-making. And emotions has a big piece to do with that. But I was graduating right around the time that the financial crisis hit, and the world changed in a big way, just like we've experienced now, again, in the past few months. And I had to pivot based on um, the opportunities that were available and also on my desire to stay in New York and to graduate. So in order to um, really secure a job at a time where it was really difficult to do that towards my, my graduation, I pivoted and I picked up an economics degree and um, secured a, a job in finance. And I thought that it was going to be like a temporary thing. And then it ended up turning into my first career. <laughs> but throughout that entire experience, I could not stop thinking about the impact that emotions were having at work. And I would see it all the time in different scenarios that would play out, especially when I was dealing with you know, hedge fund managers or portfolio managers. And I'm sure you've heard stories about what that <laughs> environment can be like. And coming into that world with kind of the lens of the, the scientist who was really curious about emotions, um, it really helped me navigate it in a way that I think ultimately led to the success that I saw in that work. But in the back of my mind, I was always wanting to come back to emotional intelligence um, really trying to understand how emotions are impacting decision-making and behavior. And in this really awesome serendipitous way, I actually reconnected with Mark Brackett almost, I think, 10 years to the date after I had the chance to, to work wow. as an undergrad on his early work. Um, and it was at an event with a client of mine when I was working in, in private wealth management at this point. And uh, I, I saw his presentation that he was giving, and I felt that spark you know, of, of when you really feel like a resonance with a, a topic and an idea. And I, I reconnected with that excitement that I felt um, that when I was an undergrad. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, getting to do this work. And then Mark and I reconnected and I asked him, you know, what kind of work is being done right now to help adults gain these skills? Because, you know, we didn't get ruler when we were growing up in school. And so how do we, we help adults gain these skills? And then he connected me with Matt Kirsch, who's the CEO of OG Life Lab, and Andrea Hoban, who's our co-founder. And I was really fortunate that I got to pivot and come back to something that I've always loved and have been really passionate about. That is one of the best stories. It's such a feel-good story. First of all, <laughs> you're brilliant. And I'm glad that you are able to... Um, show, you know, walk it and talk it as well, but walk it how you can be smart and still have feelings. You know, you can be a thinker and still be a feeler. So, so the beauty in this story is that you don't know this, but um, I had recently connected with Mark Brackett on LinkedIn mm -hmm. and then I um, introduced his work and his book and his online blogs to my mentor circle here in Silicon Valley. Oh, awesome. Valley. Yeah. So I, that was our book. We were assigned to read it. You know, we played this knowledge trivia game and the mm -hmm. winner got a book and that was our book. That was the winning book. So everyone got so excited about it. They all ended up getting either the audible or the download or the, um, 
the hard copy, which I, I'm a hard copy book person. Yep. And <laughs> um, <me> both. <laughs> they loved it. And it's been a topic of conversation for the last two weeks, permission to feel. And I think it's highly relevant right now in this uh, shelter in place environment we find ourselves in, you know, for quite a while, things are going to change. Uh, mm -hmm. They may never go back to what they were, but the OG Life Labs app that I mm -hmm. encourage people to download really made quite an impact. And it's funny because now we have these meetings and without my prompting, they report in as if I'm the mood meter. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That, that makes me so happy to hear. Yeah, it's, it's so vital, I mean, to have a vocabulary and, and get familiar with these underlying skills of emotional intelligence because I mean, emotions are driving our thinking, our decision-making, our relationships, you know, our mental and physical health. There's a ton of science that backs this up. And we ought to know something about what emotions are, how they show up in our lives, um, how they work, and, and what can we really do about them so that, you know, we might be able to create the conditions to foster more emotions that we want to experience. So that, that makes me so happy to hear, Susan. That's really cool. I feel like for far too long, we were expected uh, to have no emotions or if we had them not show them, it was considered unprofessional. Um, oh, yeah. I also, I've seen a man throw a chair across the room because he lost a big case. Whereas yep. if a woman just wells up in frustration, maybe her eyes get a little glassy, she's considered weak and oh, you know, she's not ready for the promotion, she can't lead a team simply mm -hmm. because her eyes welled up, not even crying, just even the, the thought of her crying, she's not qualified to be a leader. Yet he throws a chair across the room and they're like, well, you know, that's, he's angry, of course. And mm -hmm. I just think it's nice that you're um, revealing the science behind it and encouraging, I was going to say permissioning, but then I'm like, no, I shouldn't say that. And then I'm like, wait, that's the book. I should say that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's the perfect word, giving people permission mm -hmm. to feel. Um, mm -hmm. and I think so many of us try to keep from feeling, showing emotion or even feeling and experiencing it, you know, our, our, ourselves, not just not showing it, but not feeling it, that mm -hmm. we, um, we manifest you know, that, that has to go somewhere. Those feelings have to go somewhere. So they manifest themselves in maybe sometimes some unhealthy ways with, you know, shopping, eating, drinking, any kind of um, behavior that should probably better be better moderated. But because mm -hmm. we don't know how to process our feelings and we don't have permission to feel or we think we don't, we, you know, are not taking the right path. So I love this research. I love what you're doing. And I am so grateful for the studies, the academics, you know, the, the academic studies and papers and such that, you know, I'm a compelling storyteller. I go out there and I tell stories, but not without having the data to back it up. So yeah. thank you for that. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think what's really important here is that Sometimes, you know, having that data and having that validated theory of change and the science is what helps the skeptics start to recognize that, you know, not only is this really important, but you just touched upon two kind of key areas that we explore a lot in the program, which is 
you know, first the chair being thrown across the room. Uh, that has a lot to do with power dynamics, um, whereas the person who has the most power in the room is the one who really has permission to not just feel, but there's kind of this permission to emote in whatever way they feel and know that there's very different consequences for them as the most powerful person in the room versus, you know, someone who might be sitting at the table when that's happening, who's an individual contributor, who if they were to behave that way, the consequences would be quite different between those two scenarios. And then, you know, you brought up this, this other piece as well around just how, um, you know, business is something that's better served cold and how we're often expected to, you know, hide or sublimate what it is that we're experiencing. And that can often lead to really high levels of burnout. It can lead to mental health issues. Uh, it's really important to, to recognize how much there's a term for it called emotional labor, which is when you are expressing an emotion uh, outwardly that's actually quite different than what you're experiencing internally. And there's certain roles that people have that require this more than others. So thinking about folks that are working in call centers or in customer support um, or any kind of client-facing interactions or sales teams, they often have to have a certain level of professionalism that's expected in the role, a certain level of positivity, and they might be forced to navigate situations where emotions are highly unpleasant, but of course, they can't you know, raise their voice or throw the chair across the room. They have expectations around what their emotional um, expression and behavior can look like. And if, if we don't recognize that there's that difference between what we're really feeling and how we're being expected to express, you know, given a certain role or position, that can have a really big consequence um, on our health and our well-being in the long term. And so emotional labor is this really kind of rich topic that we go into because you know, we do it all the time, whether it's at work or at home, you know, as a parent wanting to um, kind of stay regulated and calm, even though your kid might be melting down or trying to stay calm in a meeting. If your kid's running around in the background on your video conference, <laughs> these are these little moments where we have to, to do that. We have to labor. And it's not that emotional labor is a bad thing. It's that it's very helpful to understand what it is that's happening, start building a vocabulary around it, and start to help understand how you can kind of um, take care of yourself and really recharge so that you don't have that long-term impact of, of burnout or the other issues that can come up as well. All of this means so much to me. Not only am I intrigued, this, this touches a lot on what I do for a living and the circles uh, in which I hang. So I'm thinking the legal industry really needs to have a talk with you or you with it for sure. Um, <laughs> You know, that's a high stress, high, high, like, you know, it's one thing to be stressful at a point in your day. It's another to maintain high stress levels throughout your day. And I think in that industry, uh, lawyers, especially uh, those who work in, you know, outside firms, they are on high stress most of the day. And mm -hmm. that industry is, you know, rife with suicide and alcoholism and drug use and they're just starting to um, really pull away, you know, pull back the curtain on all that. And I, I think I want to introduce you to a few, you know, uh, publishers, editors, people in that world who might be interested in your work and introducing it to uh, their subscribers. So definitely. That'd be amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, 
something I'll let you in on a little secret that's been really fascinating on our side because we get to work with lots of organizations and individuals and what has been fascinating is hearing across all of these different industries how everyone knows that emotions matter right and they have this big impact and in everything from healthcare to finance to um, legal services to manufacturing software development i've heard the same thing which is oh no 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 emotions matter the most in the work that we're doing this is how it shows up and impacts us and and the thing i want to tell everyone is you know we're all grappling with these these same issues across industries across different levels within organizations and uh, it's really exciting to get the chance to start bringing that out into the light and and helping people build a framework and a vocabulary to to do something with that so that we can um, kind of start changing the the culture around emotions and how they show up at work and how they can also be really harnessed for the better so that we can have better relationships with our colleagues with our clients as leaders across our organizations so um, emotions certainly have a huge impact in the the area of you know law and legal work and with attorneys and in healthcare and these other industries as well. So it's been fascinating to hear the examples of how that shows up for different people in so many different worlds. Sure, I can, I can readily recognize the broad application, but one thing I noticed that's different about your work is often we, um, I have on guests that do great work, many, many PhDs have been on my show. Um, we talk about their raising awareness of certain issues but they don't always have tools. They don't always have things we can apply to do to change, to create change, change minds and behaviors. You mm -hmm. actually have the tools. So not only do you have the research and the, um, you know, the information to raise awareness on certain issues, you have, you know, well, what do I do now? Now I know why this happens. How do I create change? And I think that's what's so remarkable about what you're doing um, in combination with Mark uh, Brackett's work. So it's amazing. It's amazing. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, we, we do really, uh, we try to lift, you know, the theory kind of off of the page and into your life so that you can start using this information in a way that's practical and ultimately really helpful to you and your own emotion goals. That's a beautiful way to put it. Lift the theory off the page and give us useful tools for application. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this question. You may not have had it yet, or maybe you've had several. What has been your proudest professional accomplishment? Oh, I have to pick one. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. I think, I mean, honestly, Susan, I think getting the opportunity to, to do the work that I'm doing right now um, in conjunction with um, you know, really, it's, it's Andrea Hoban, who's our co-founder, she's such a rock star, who, and Matt Kirsch, who's our CEO, um, who developed this program with Mark Rackett and Robin Stern, and um, getting the chance to have a small role that I do in, in getting to contribute to the kind of life-changing results that we see people get from doing this emotional intelligence work. Um, it, I think it's it's the most deeply meaningful work I've had the opportunity to engage in. Um, it's such an honor to get to see how this shows up in people's lives and the kind of differences that they see that are way longer term. Um, you know, we've had 
clients who've come to us and said that their relationship with their teenage kid has transformed as a result of, you know, what had initially started as a, a leadership development tool that they were using. And so I'm really proud of the work that we're doing at OG. Uh, I'm so hopeful as I see how people are taking this new way of, of learning and really integrating it into their lives. And I just think um, it's, it's such a privilege to get the chance to, to do this and to be involved with it. And, you know, it was scary to leave my, my career. And, um, you know, I, I really loved the, the people I was working with and the work that I was doing. And a big pivot like that, you know, from finance back into to this realm, um, it was scary, but I, I don't regret it for one moment because I, I really do believe that this is life-changing work. And um, it's been just amazing to watch the transformation in our clients. And also, you know, I'm a practitioner of this stuff as well, Susan. Like, I've, I, I feel like it's, it, is, it is a lifelong journey. And even though you might be immersed in, you know, the world of emotional intelligence, every day is an opportunity to practice. And um, it's been really amazing, my own transformation that I've seen as a result of getting to live and immerse you know, myself in this world as well. So I'd say my proudest professional accomplishment is having the opportunity to work with my amazing team at OG Life Lab. That's an amazing answer. I'm sure they're going to be grinning ear to ear when they hear that. <laughs> Not only, I mean, of course, that's a safe answer, but I, it's a sincere answer. It's a, you can tell. I mean, when we talked on the phone before, I was like, this woman loves what she does. And as I learned more about what you do, I said, well, this woman also loves what that woman does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very, very fortunate. And I recognize, you know, um, I think that's something that hopefully all of us get the opportunity to merge, you know, the heartfelt work that we deeply care about and that we think can help really make a positive impact in the world with what we do professionally. And I know what it felt like to not have that clear of a connection. And I think that's something that most people really experience. So that's probably where that's coming from. Because, you know, I, when I think about that question, like, I have other things that would come to mind, like being at the Bretton Woods Annual Committee meeting, you know, at the World Bank wow. and getting the chance to meet these, you know, big policymakers from some of the largest central banks in the world. And uh, yes, there's pride in that. But at the end of the day, like what I really care about is um, that people are, are having, you know, a higher quality of life experience at work and at home and everywhere in between. So um, yeah, I'm, I do love what I do. <laughs> what a remarkable journey. Um, okay, so I have to ask, what does OG mean? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, so OG it's actually the the word in Italian for today, and oh, we spell it. We, I knew that, yeah. um, <laughs> but we spell it a little differently. Spell differently, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Okay. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So we, but that was where the inspiration came from, and I think the thinking behind that is that what we really have, you know, when it comes to improving the the quality of our lives and really working towards becoming our best selves is it's today, it's the work that we're doing today. And even in the way our programs developed, you know, we talk about taking these bite-sized steps, you know, every day or every other day, because that's how we, we make meaningful change. Very zen, be here now, just take <laughs> yeah. today, one step at a time. I love yes, it. Yes, although 
I also learned that Oji in Japanese means uncle. So we can also be your uncle as well. <laughs> okay, so that's what I was going to say. Um, I speak Italian and I'm like, that's not how you spell that. So yep. <laughs> I always thought it was Japanese. And when someone asked me about it, I said, I'm pretty sure it's Japanese for something. I don't know what it's. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for explaining that. Um, mm -hmm. I do. I do love that. Let me ask you this. You've had it you know, incredible opportunities to work alongside some of the most remarkable social scientists and, and, and in your financial um, life as well, financial services life as well, you've worked with some remarkable people too. Who has been maybe an inspiration or even a mentor or even better, a sponsor perhaps? Yeah. Um, I can't help but think and think about uh, Bernard Connolly who is this remarkable economist that I had the opportunity to work really closely with in New York for several years. Um, and he hired me as his first employee to help build out his, his macroeconomic research firm. Um, and this is where we were primarily working with hedge funds and central banks and sovereign wealth funds. And Bernard really saw in me the potential to grow into a, a role that when I look back at, you know, I didn't have the experience, I didn't have the multiple degrees, uh, but he saw the potential in me and really trusted me with opportunities that I, I think, I mean, were not only life-changing, but he really helped me push back against imposter syndrome that, you know, inevitably would creep in in these moments where I'd find myself in certain situations or certain rooms and I'd be questioning, you know, do I even really deserve to be here? Like, what am I doing? I just got out of school and like, um, do I, do I really understand what's going on here? And Bernard, you know, always had my back, always pushed me, um, you know, beyond my comfort zone intellectually so that I could really expand my, my knowledge and my understanding of, of the fascinating world of macroeconomics. Um, and then personally, I mean, he's become one of my, my closest, nearest and dearest friends. Um, even though he is back in the UK and I'm back in California, we still speak regularly. And um, I'll never forget, you know, what it meant to have a boss who really believed in me and was really pushing me to believe in myself as well. So definitely Bernard Connolly. What a very nice tribute. Wow, that was amazing. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Um, it sounds like you've had a remarkable journey. You exude happiness. Um, you exude fortitude. Let, there certainly has been a time, I'm sure, that you've had a challenge or a setback. How exactly did you overcome that, if you're willing to share? Yeah. Um, let's see. My biggest challenge, I think... I'm going to touch upon something here that will hopefully resonate with you know, some of, of your listeners, which is um, the socioeconomics that I was born into, um, which is something that, especially when you're growing up, can feel very much out of your control and can dictate so much about the opportunities you, you can or you can't have in life. And um, my parents both lost their parents when they were very young, and so they didn't have the kind of traditional guidance and support um, that other folks may have had as they were starting their families or starting their lives together. Um, my mom's an immigrant from Colombia, and my father is an artist. And um, we actually lost our our home, my childhood home, as a result of 
you know, it started with uh, Black Monday in 1987, and it was kind of the, the unwinding of this beautiful life that they had built for themselves. And we faced really um, real financial hardships, and that defined a, a lot of um, not just the struggles or setbacks, but also what was needed to try and overcome that. So um, I think overcoming that kind of involved two different levers. First is I have a really strong work ethic. I genuinely love working. <laughs> um, and I've been working since I was 14. And I, I do my best to, to show up and say yes to opportunities when they present themselves. And I also push myself to like put myself out there, even when it feels really uncomfortable. Um, and I'm sure you've had those moments as well, Susan, where you see someone or you see that there might be a chance to try something different and you, you make yourself vulnerable by, by putting yourself out there. And, you know, I relied in high school and college on things like scholarships, and I was always working multiple jobs to support myself. And I think having um, that kind of, you said fortitude, which I really appreciate that that comes through, uh, because it, I think it became reinforcing that I know I'm willing to, to work and to do what it takes and to try my very best. And that's really all we can do. Um, but I've been really fortunate that that's paid dividends because you just never know how some of the seeds that we plant with each other might show up later in life. And that's certainly been something that's been true for me, even with the opportunity to, to reconnect with Mark. Um, that was such a kind of a, a signal of, you know, if you're willing to show up and do the work. I mean, when I was doing, it was just data collection, but I'd be waking up at 3.45 in the morning to get on the subway um, as a college student. So I could get out to these schools, you know, by 8 a.m. because I lived up in the Bronx. And that kind of stuff, you know, in the long term, it, it does pay off if you're willing to put in the work. That is so beautiful. I was going to mention your reconnection, but you touched on it just there. Um, <laughs> everything you've said, this is so meaningful. I wonder if you are um, conscious and aware of the impact your parents losing their home had on, on you. Like if there was some impact on you that you're, you're aware of, or maybe that, that drove you, some, some impact that was maybe unconscious that drove you to work in financial services and to be, you know, very, very accomplished and uh, have such yeah. a strong work. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, too. I think it's certainly a, a source of, uh, you know, it's a fuel. And really, part of the reason I was so curious about macroeconomics and, and geopolitics, which I know sounds like a different language to a lot of folks, but really, we're talking about money and how money works is I really wanted to understand how it's possible that, like, for example, going into my senior year of college, all of a sudden it became really difficult to get a, a loan that I was going to need in order to, to pay for my last year of school. And I was so curious about how is it possible that at this exact time last year, credit was free flowing and I was able to secure a really low interest rate on a loan. And now 12 months later, there's no credit available. There's only one or two banks that was offering private student loans at that time. This was really at the peak of the crisis kind of boiling over. And I just wanted to understand, like, how does money work? Like, how is that possible that um, the world seems kind of the same when I look outside, but things have fundamentally shifted in terms of, of how money is flowing. And so um, it certainly drove my curiosity. Um, and it also drove, you know, the reality that I needed to 
make things happen um, for myself. <laughs> so, um, and, and do kind of whatever it takes, which New York City is certainly a place that will, will help kind of serve as a boot camp for, for anyone that's willing to do the work. I love that analogy. It is certainly a boot <laughs> camp. Um, I love New York City. All things happen there, sometimes all the time. But yep. um, it's really great to hear your story. You use the word curiosity, which is one of the tools I use in my teaching. Um, how we can change the world. And like you said, it's not the kind of thing you can look outside your window and see happening, but it starts from within. And if we can all embrace curiosity about the other, we would certainly have, um, you know, more equity in the workplace, you know, a smaller uh, pay gap and so much, so much would be different. Your Absolutely. comment is a perfect segue to the wild card question. And while you were talking, I picked it from my magic box of meaningful questions. Ooh. If you're game, I'm going to ask you a question that I haven't let you know of before. Yes. Awesome. I love a woman with courage. <laughs> All right. So I think this question is the universe picked this question because it says, some, name something society places too much value on today. Wow, that's a good one. Something that society places too much value on today. Ooh, I'd have to say it's an interplay between our obsession with youth and our obsession with beauty. And oh, I kind love of, it. Yeah, I think there's way too much emphasis and power given to the idea of celebrity or what it means to be beautiful or um, the allure of being young, which is all wonderful and very playful. And, you know, it's something to be celebrated, but I don't think held at the level that it is in the world today. Um, like, I would love to see, you know, red carpets that are featuring doctors and scientists and economists that are really helping policymakers that are helping to change the world like that's so much more interesting and i really wish that that was what was driving the culture with a capital c uh, more so than you know reality tv stars <laughs> and uh just that that whole realm so that's that's my answer to the wild card question i couldn't think of a better answer. I mean, that is <laughs> spot on. I had a guest on the other day and we were talking about, uh, I think we were off uh, recording, but we were talking about ageism and mm -hmm. sizeism. So what is beautiful? Is beautiful, you know, Kate Moss or is beautiful Adele? I mean, I know those are, uh, I'm probably so, I'm not part of the mainstream, so I don't watch much <laughs> I don't know who the latest singers are, but yeah, um, I think the last I watch Netflix now that I'm stuck at home with the COVID-19 shelter in place orders. But mm -hmm. prior to that, I think the last thing I ever saw was the episodes of Lost and, and it was quite by accident. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I love that answer. That's a very you are such a remarkable woman. You are oh, possibly. I, I mean, I love all of my guests. They're all remarkable <laughs> in their way, but you speak my language and you, you know, fortify me. So thank you. Thank oh, you so much. Thank you, Susan. That means a lot, especially coming from you. And I'm, I'm so grateful to get the opportunity to chat with you today and, 
Um, I think it's so awesome, you know, what you're doing for folks and helping to give people a platform to share our stories because it really is what connects us and, you know, what ultimately I hope can help us lift each other up as we continue trying to progress and move forward, um, you know, collectively with the, the values that are really driving us. I couldn't have said it better. With that, if people want to reach you directly, how would they do that? Yeah, well, I, I love connecting with new folks. So um, you're welcome to find me on LinkedIn. My name is Camila, C-A-M-I-L-A, last name Mize, M-I-Z-E. Or you can shoot me an email anytime. My email is ilikecamila at gmail.com. <laughs> I love it. I lo I there could not have been a better way to say goodbye. That is amazing. <laughs> if you didn't get a chance to write that down, I'll certainly um, put all of that in our blog that we write about each guest. And that blog will be available on LinkedIn in... 48 hours. Great. Thank you so much, Susan. That was so fun. You're awesome. Thank you. And thanks for listening, everyone. Bye-bye.